0: Picton, a pig farmer whose horrific crimes make him one of Canada's most prolific serial killers. From his birth on October 24th, 1949, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, there was little happiness in Robert William Picton's life. His father was largely absent throughout Robert's childhood, and his mother Louise was a tough and callous woman. Louise Picton ran the family's meat business and raised their children to work long hours on the farm like she did. In the 1950s, in a small farming community like this, it didn't matter if it was a school day or not. The kids would be put to work on the farm. Robert and his siblings spent long, hot days on the farm and had little activity outside of that. When working on the farm when he was young, Robert took interest in a baby calf that needed a bit of extra care. Even though he was just a child, he looked after it like it was his own pet. For a time, it was his only companion, and he cared greatly for it. Robert's family promised that he could keep the calf as it grew older. But as it grew older, his mother went back on her promise. Robert woke up one morning to find that his only companion had been slaughtered. To make matters worse, Louise Picton made it clear that when they were having beef for dinner, there was a chance it could be Robert's pet that they killed. Robert never fully recovered from his grief of losing his pet and had an even harder time forgiving his family, particularly as the tragedy was often thrown back in his face. Like killing her son's beloved animal shows, Robert's mother was a harsh person, Shortly after Robert's brother Dave got his driver's license, he hit a young boy named Tim Barrett with the family's truck. Tim was visibly injured and unsure of what to do. Dave left the scene and went home to tell his mother what happened. Dave and Louise went back to where Tim was laying on the side of the road. Louise looked over Tim's injured body and shoved him to the edge of the road into a ditch filled with water. Without looking back, Louise and Dave went back home. When Tim's body was discovered, the coroner found that he had died by drowning, though the significant injuries from the accident were noted. After a small inquiry, the mechanic who fixed the large dent in the Picton family truck told police what he knew. Dave was identified as the driver and ultimately sent to juvenile court, but Louise was never implicated, even though she was the one who pushed the boy into the water that caused his death. As he grew up, it was clear that Robert wasn't your average young boy, and by most accounts, he seems to have been generally disliked. He didn't do well in school, didn't have many friends, and worst of all, he was notoriously smelly. Robert had a fear of water, which he says stems from his mother's tendency to aggressively hose him down outside after days of working on the farm. Because he wasn't showering and spent most of his days on a pig farm, he smelled like manure and dead animals, only bathing when nagged by others or hosed down outside by his mother. With no friends, a smell that made him an outcast around town and bad grades Robert ultimately dropped out of high school around 1963, when he was about 14 years old. For the next 15 years after leaving school, Robert worked full-time on the family's farm with his mother and siblings. In 1978, Robert's father died, and only a year after that, his mother passed away too. This left the meat business and farm in the control of the Picton's siblings, primarily Robert and his brothers. The siblings decided to sell much of the farm, keeping only 6.5 hectares for themselves to run a small-scale livestock farm. Though the rest of his living family moved away, Robert decided to stay on the property, living in a small trailer home. In 1996, Robert and his brother David established a non-profit called Piggy Palace Good Times Society. On paper, they claimed that it was a charity to raise funds for service organizations by hosting dances and shows, but in reality, the Picton brothers used this as an excuse to host massive parties. These parties involved excessive drinking, drugs, loud music and noise, and general rowdiness that the neighbors hated a typical party that had over 1,700 people in attendance, including the biker gang, the Hells Angels, who brought with them many sex workers. By 2000, the British Columbia government had realized that the Picton brothers were using Piggy's Palace as a way to avoid paying taxes, and they had failed to provide the necessary financial statements to prove their legitimacy. Piggy's Palace Good Time Society was quickly shut down. In the years after Robert's parents died and during the same time that he was working on the farm and running Piggy's Palace, women in Vancouver's East End were going missing at an alarming rate. The area was the poorest in all of Canada and had the highest HIV infection rate in North America. This area also had a high population of sex workers and drug addicts. So maybe it's not much of a surprise that the police seemingly turned a blind eye to the wave of disappearances. Those who knew the missing women were obviously concerned for their welfare when they seemed to simply disappear. But the city made it clear that they didn't share their same worry by only conducting minimal, superficial investigations. Friends who tried to file reports on the missing women were often dismissed by police, suggesting that she probably is in Las Vegas with a guy or that she left for a better life. While it's clear that these women who went missing during this time period led high-risk lifestyles, that doesn't mean that their disappearances deserved any less concern or vigor in investigation from the police. The women were sex workers, drug addicts, runaways, alcoholics, or had severe mental health issues. And though it was possible that some of these women had simply left the area for whatever reason, it's hard to believe that many could have gone missing without any leads at all. Even more alarming is that there weren't any actions taken by police to help search for them. In 1998, a detective inspector in the police department for Vancouver finally suggested what would ultimately be confirmed. There was a serial killer on the loose. The detective Kim Rossmo had a PhD in criminology and was an expert in geographic profiling of violent criminals. But despite his evidence-based and expert concerns, his ideas were dismissed. In fact, after he spoke out that the police force should be doing more to find these women and their potential killer, he was demoted. It was not until a few years later that the police finally gave more thought into the investigation, even though women had regularly been going missing for nearly 20 years at this point. In 1999, America's Most Wanted ran a story on the disappearances that garnered a lot of media attention. This was followed two years later by The Vancouver Sun, publishing an 11-part series on the missing women. In the series From the Sun, part of the focus was on the disastrous response of the Vancouver Police Department to the increasing number of reports. The media reports made it clear that the police department had been incredibly negligent in investigating, and people were understandably shocked and upset. They had dismissed reports of missing women, they had flawed investigations... And there were more women missing than the police had initially admitted to. By the end of the 1990s, there were at least 45 missing women from just the east end of Vancouver. In the end, the Sun series had its intended effect. The department had been publicly shamed. And to continue to leave this many missing persons cases untouched would have been too problematic for them politically. As a result... They teamed up with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to form a missing women task force in April of 2001 that they named Project Evenhanded. And within a year, they had found their man, Robert William Picton.
1: Robert Picton was already in the police databases by the time that investigators began to focus on him as a suspect in the disappearances. In 1997, Wendy Lynn Iester, a sex worker, was picked up by Robert and brought back to his home. Once inside, he handcuffed her and stabbed her. She fought back and managed to get the knife away from him. She used it to stab him, and while he was taken aback from that and in pain, she managed to run away from the house. She was rescued by a driver who saw her bleeding and panicked, running along the street. Despite Wendy's wounds and testimony, the charges against Robert were dropped because the woman was a drug addict and therefore deemed too unreliable. Both Robert and Wendy were treated at the same hospital for their stab wounds, and the key to the handcuffs was found in his pocket. So it had to have been pretty clear that he had locked her up in the first place. But when questioned, Robert lied saying that she attacked him first. With conflicting stories, police brushed off the allegations, essentially reducing it to a case of he said, she said. When they decided she was less reliable, they let him go. We have to wonder, though, had Wendy Lynn Iester been taken seriously and her claims were investigated? How many lives would have been saved? By 1999, Robert found himself investigated again, though this was a bit before the police had formed their new task force to investigate the 45 missing women. An employee at the Picton's farm went to the police after they were told a terrifying story by a woman named Lynn Ellingson. Lynn had been living at the farm and working for the Picton's for a couple months. One night, Lynn and another worker on the farm went to pick up a prostitute for Robert, which they often did. They brought her back to the house, and the woman and Robert went to one room, while Lynn got high in another. Later that night, Lynn was woken up by a noise and a light from a barn where the pigs were slaughtered. Since it was unusual for anyone to be there at night, she went to see what was going on what she found was horrific. She saw the woman she had picked up earlier bloodied and hanging from a chain in the barn. Robert noticed Lynn and pulled her into the barn. He grabbed her and made her look at the woman's body. He told her that if she said anything to anyone, she'd be right beside her. Robert was covered in blood and there were bloody knives in the barn. Understandably so, lynn was terrified after the employee she confided in went to the police lynn was brought in to share her story with the police firsthand and to be questioned but robert's control of lynn was strong he provided her the drugs that she was addicted to and he made it clear that he would kill her if she confessed Lynn denied that she had seen anything to the police, turning their attention away from Robert once more. During this, Robert consented to having the farm investigated. But with Lynn being a drug addict and recanting what she saw, the police felt no reason to take her seriously. Though they could have searched the premises, the police never followed through. At this point, if the police would have bothered to investigate the farm they would have had proof of what Robert was doing, and he could have been stopped sooner. Instead, Robert was off the hook again. As the task force to find the missing women was developed, and media attention was at an all-time high, police in the area were finally becoming more suspicious of Robert Pickton. Bill Hiscox, an employee on the farm, had been following the news reports on the missing women intently and had started to make connections to women he had seen on the Picton's farm. Deciding to do a bit of investigating himself while on shift, Bill was told by a fellow worker that they had seen women's clothes, purses, and even ID cards around the farm. Bill was sure that some of those items had to belong to women that the police were trying to find. So he went to the police to report what he had been told. But again, the police, despite their new concern for the victims, brushed them off. They told Bill that without physical evidence or testimony from the person who actually seen the items, they couldn't get a warrant, so there was nothing that they could do. 14 more women lost their lives between Bill Hiscock's report and the police's next investigation of Robert Picton. Finally, in early February of 2002, a man named Scott Chubb came to the police with a story that they could actually investigate. Scott was a former employee on the Picton farm, and he shared that he had personally seen illegal firearms in Robert's house. An eyewitness account was enough to get the warrant that they needed to check out the farm. When they arrived, they found the illegal and unregistered guns, just like Scott had said. But in the search, they also found the women's clothing, jewelry, and other items that they knew belonged to some of the missing women. For possessing the guns, Robert was arrested and charged, but soon released on bail. Though he was out of prison, police kept watch on him, and he was not allowed to return to his home or the farm. The police got a second warrant, one that allowed them to further investigate the property, based on the women's items that they had found. In Just Roberts' trailer alone, besides clothes, shoes, and jewelry, they found an inhaler belonging to Serena Apertzwey and blood inside with a positive match to Mona Wilson. These would be the first victims positively identified. What investigators found in Robert's home was just the beginning of a massive $70 million month-long search of the largest crime scene in Canadian history. 200,000 DNA samples were taken and 600,000 pieces of evidence were cataloged most of which were human remains. Despite so many fragments, police couldn't put together an entire body, just pieces of so many lives lost. DNA and body parts were found in freezers, the meat grinder, and buried through the property. Investigators determined that Robert was luring women to his home and outright kidnapping them killing them and dismembering their bodies, putting them through a meat grinder and feeding whatever was left to his pigs. With so much carnage and intermixed DNA samples, it was difficult to identify all of the victims. There were too many fragments, and many were in stages of high decomposition due to being buried on the farm. Police gave press conferences and worked with their task force to get family members of the missing women to come forward to provide DNA that could be used to match with one of the thousands of samples they uncovered. But given that many of the missing women were runaways, addicts, or lived other transient lifestyles, their families weren't in the area or weren't in their lives to even notice that they had gone missing. After two years of investigating, pleading for families to come forward, and working with 100 anthropologists to collect and identify the remains found on Robert Picton's farm, 25 victims were positively ID'd.
0: With human remains being found on the farm, Robert was arrested and jailed again as police worked to tie as many missing women to the body parts found on the farm. While in jail, Robert was put in his cell with an undercover police officer in hopes that the officer could get Robert to open up more about who he had killed and where they could find more evidence. Luckily for the police, Robert was ready and excited to talk. Robert felt like a celebrity, loving the attention he was getting, even if it was for murder. He boasted about what he had done and carelessly revealed information on where he was keeping some of his victims' things, including their ID cards. This information allowed police to concretely identify even more victims. While chatting with his undercover cellmate, Robert was scarily joyous, and he's recorded saying, I got a murder charge on me and 48 more to come, 48 more to come. Whoopee! He told his cellmate that it was his goal to make it an even 50 murders and that he regretted getting caught before he could get there. According to Robert, he only got caught because he had gotten sloppy. Despite confessing to 49 murders, British Columbia Crown prosecutors were only able to connect and charge Robert Picton with the murders of 27 women. The women they were able to positively name. Robert's trial was complex due to the massive amounts of data that needed to be sifted through. Though he was arrested in 2002, his preliminary hearing didn't begin until 2003 and took six months. After that, his official trial didn't start until January 2007. In order to be sure that the charges would stick... And to minimize any risk of Robert getting off on a small technicality or loophole, prosecutors decided to initially only charge him with six counts of murder for six of the victims that they could most clearly tie to him. Almost a year later, on December 9th, 2007, Robert was found guilty on all six counts of second degree murder. He was given life in prison with no possibility of parole for at least 25 years. With a successful lifelong conviction, prosecutors debated whether or not to pursue a trial and conviction for the remaining 21 identified victims. By 2010, it was announced that a trial would not be going forward. The prosecution's reasoning was that given Robert's sentencing, he was already facing the maximum amount of punishment that was legally allowed. A further trial would cost millions of dollars without adding any more to his prison sentence there was a mixed response. Some families were angry that their lost loved ones wouldn't receive any official justice, while other families were relieved that they didn't have to endure another lengthy public trial that would reopen wounds that they had spent years trying to heal. As of today, Robert Picton is still in prison. He won't be eligible for parole until February 22nd, 2032. And given how many lives he took... It seems unlikely that he'll be granted that. After Robert's trial ended in 2010, a government inquiry was made to examine the Vancouver Police Department's handling in Robert Picton's investigation and the investigation of all of the missing women. In the end, the inquiry recognized that the police work in these cases were blatant failures that directly led to the loss of so many innocent lives. Over 60 recommendations were made to improve the police force, to provide more aid and security for sex workers, and to compensate the victims' families. We are confident that Robert Pickton will be in prison for the rest of his life. With new technology, investigators are hopeful that more victims can be positively identified, even now, decades later. We are confident that Robert Picton will be in prison for the rest of his life. With new technology, investigators are hopeful that more victims can be positively identified, even now, decades later. The changes that Vancouver police made to their investigation tactics have greatly increased the attention and concern that missing person cases get, including sex workers and other marginalized groups that were clearly not prioritized during Robert Picton's reign of terror. Is it possible that if the police had cared for these women like they would any other, Robert Picton wouldn't have gotten so close to a school of killing 50 women? Let us know what you guys think. And this completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening and your lovely support. We'll see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production.
1: Are you kidding me? That was perfect.